This is the Photo Experiment Podcast, brought to you by PhotoBiz X. Craig Wetchin has been a professional photographer in Australia and the US for 31 years. He's got a string of awards that would make any photographer proud, and he's been exhibited on numerous occasions. But he's arguably best known for his book, Men and Their Sheds, where he photographed and captured the stories of 101 men and their backyard sheds. In addition to all that, Craig has taught SEO and web marketing for photographers. This guy is one accomplished photographer, and I'm wrapped to have him with us now. Craig, welcome. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Mate, my pleasure. When we were setting up this interview, you know, we had to sort of juggle around with times and things, and I think we are working around, do you do some teaching or, you know, how do you make a living these days? Is it all photography? Yeah, well, I do a bit of teaching. I teach for uh, a couple of colleges here in down in Melbourne. So predominantly for the last five years, I've been teaching at Photography Studies College, which is at, in Southbank in Melbourne, and uh, sort of branched out, moved a little bit away from PSC. I'm still teaching at PSC part-time, and I'm teaching part-time at Melbourne Polytechnic. What's PSC? Uh, Photography Studies College. So it's a private college that teaches advanced diploma part-time and teaches degree in photography to full-time students. I didn't even know that you, know, you could do a degree in photography in Australia. I thought that was something that was done in the US. Um, yeah, no. Well, Photography Studies College is probably, well, it is the only college in Australia that actually offers a degree in photography, just like where I graduated, Brooks Institute of Photography in Santa Barbara, California. They, I got a degree in photography and PSC is the only one in Australia that has specifically in photography. What are the advantages, do you think, of studying photography rather than just going out there and you know, learning from YouTube and being self-taught? I think one of the biggest advantages in teaching a subject today, which is um, it's an industry course subject at uh, Melbourne Polytechnic. And, you know, the students, we sat around for oh, probably about four hours talking about how they can get into the industry and one of the girls said there's no way that what we've just done in just the last six weeks and what i've taught them and what i've exposed them to they can actually do or accomplish on a youtube video and that's just meeting people in the industry in the profession of photography from don't know if you know Jesse Marlowe. I brought him in to do a talk. He's a Melbourne street photographer. And Michael Tia, who was just the Victorian Professional Photographer of the Year just recently. And I brought them to see Andrew Esposito, who's a wedding and portrait and commercial photographer. So, you know, having all these relationships and being able to really feed off one another. So education also becomes a very collaborative approach and creative approach so you've got this creative dynamic where every students can you know interact with each other just like industry professionals like yourself and myself could you know go into an AIPP meeting and we collaborate on ideas so the students have that same sort of opportunity amongst themselves now as I always say that you know photography is an industry that has a zero barrier for entry so having a piece of paper behind you, you know, these days, it can get you a lot of places. I wouldn't be able to teach, you know, a degree if I didn't have a degree, if you know what I mean. So I've been able to branch myself out 
other than just a photographer and now as an author, also a certified educator in photography with, you know, I guess paperwork behind me and that sort of certification. So I see that's where education really in any field can really be an immense benefit. You have moved, you know, for a long time in the circle of other photographers. You know, you're heavily involved with the AIPP, or you certainly won a lot of awards with the AIPP. Mm. I don't know. Do you have a son or a daughter? I have two daughters, 10 and 14. Okay, so let's say your 14-year-old daughter has this love of photography, and I don't know if she does, but let's say she finishes her HSC, year 12 at school, and she says, Dad, I want to become a professional photographer. And I know you might have a biased view here, but what would you honestly tell her as far as becoming a photographer? Would you tell her to go and study or would you tell her to go and learn photography? Go and learn yourself. I would tell her that she needs to get an apprenticeship. An apprenticeship from the standpoint of, you know, working with another photographer who she has admiration and wants to mentor with. Now, to get an education, I would say, yeah, get as much education as you humanly possibly can. You know, all education, no matter at what level, is going to benefit you for the future. That's what I would say. I would certainly say the apprenticeship. I mean, I always tell my students, you know, in my mentor classes that, you know, you'll learn more sometimes by sweeping floors than trying to demand the fact that you need to be behind the camera because sweeping floors shows you lots of, I guess, teaches the art of observation. I'll tell you what, I can't tell you how many photographer floors I've swept. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. When I was going through photography school in California, the amount of times I'd go down to L.A. and I'd get an assisting job and I'd be sweeping floors and cleaning the bathrooms and then I'd be watching what they're doing. And then, you know, one job in particular, I remember shooting while working with a photographer shot uh, for Road and Track magazine. And yeah, I just did nothing but sweep floors and I was packing stuff away. And the guy got called out on another job and he asked me to finish the job. So I sat there and I finished the photo shoot of Road and Track magazine. Road and Track is in cycling? No, it's an automobile. Oh, okay. Right, okay. I know that the listener would love to hear this. When you give advice to your students and what you experienced yourself, if you want to get a job as a second shooter or you're looking to get an apprenticeship or go and assist another photographer, how would you approach that to have the best chance of getting in with that photographer? I would not go in with a folio. I would go in and I would set up an appointment and say, I'd like to carry your bags for free. I'd like to carry your bags for free for a couple of jobs. And, you know, if you like my attitude, if you like my approach, maybe we can work something out, if that makes any sense. You know, getting involved and just knocking on the door and and just saying, I want to come carry your bags. And you don't have to pay me for a little while because I know you'd be giving me a free education. And then eventually, obviously, you got to work out a deal where you, you know, would end up getting paid and working for the guy or lady or whoever runs the studio. I just think, in my opinion, too many people are trying to race out and set up a studio or set up a photography business without actually knowing the business of photography. You know, photography is only 1% of the job, you know, taking pictures. That's my opinion. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I wish I knew more about business before I started my business. Yeah, If I only knew that it wasn't all just taking photos, maybe I would have taken a different path or done things a bit differently anyway. Oh, absolutely. And I think that's the other thing I tell, you know, I try to teach my students is you've got to detach 
from your photography. You've got to detach the fact that you're creative and you've got this sense of ownership of the photograph. Yes, you've got ownership of the photograph, but it's got to be a monetary ownership rather than a, you know, uh, the olden days, no one way back when film days, no one wanted to give up their negatives. You know, nowadays everybody's giving up the digital files, but giving away for nothing, you know, so, or they hold those photographs so preciously in their hands that it sort of tends to kill the vibe, if you know what I mean. And now I'm lost now. So what do you mean? You mean if you're shooting for a client, you have to what, let things go? Well, no, I guess what I'm saying is, okay, here we go. So my biggest problem when I was photographing weddings was I held on to my photography a lot, probably too tight from the standpoint of, I'm trying to figure out how to explain this. As creatives, we take such pride in our work and I'm stumped for words now, Andrew. (laughs) Do you think as a wedding photographer, so I'm still shooting weddings now, I should be giving up my digital files for free or including them with my packages? No, absolutely. No, absolutely. No, no, no. That's not what I mean. What do I mean? How do I used to, I used to explain this so well. There's no way that I would give away my work and there's no way I would, yeah, give it away for nothing. But am I giving away my work if I'm say charging three or four or $5,000, you know, that client's paying me to, to shoot their wedding? Absolutely not. I guess what I'm saying is I held on to my photography personally. So what I'm saying is detaching yourself personally from the work. You know, I've had so many people want to buy my digital files for my shed book, and I refuse. Who wants to buy them? The subjects in the photos? The subject. Right. The subject. I would say you can buy a print, but you can't buy the digital files. So why? What's your reasoning there? I would totally lose all artistic or ownership of that file because God only knows where that file would go. But does that really matter? If you're a professional photographer and let's say this guy that you photographed in his shed, he loves that photo and he wants to pay you for that digital file, you know, $1,000 or $2,000. Why do you care now what happens to it if you've been paid for it? See, this is my problem, Andrew. I can't let go of those files. I'm happy to let go of a print. I think a print is worth more than the digital file. But you won't give up the digital file. No, but I'm happy to sell a print. Okay. So those digital files that you've shot for your book, they're not for sale. They are yours? They're not for sale. Okay. So what about if one of those men want a low-res file to share on Facebook or to email to their mum overseas? Yeah, look, if they want to do that, they can obviously pinch the, (laughs) quote-unquote, pinch the file off my blog, which I have had. And, I mean, this... Look, I'm probably not making any sense on this, but what I mean by detaching from the photography, maybe I need to, I do, I know I need to detach a bit. Look, if I were to sell my files, Andrew, I'd sell them to the National Archives. I'd sell them to the National Library. Okay. So you would be giving them up then? I would sell them for a price to the National Archives. So I've never done anything like that. So if you were to sell them to the National Gallery or to, to these archives, yep. do you actually pass on the copyright or you just give no. them usage rights of that file? I just give them usage rights. Okay, so you still have the file. You can still do what you want to do with it. Correct. Okay, so that's not so bad. And that's the same if the client buys your file. Look, when it comes to commercial clients, commercial clients I find, I feel, well, they're different than a domestic client. 
I mean, at any time I saw all the digital files that I sold with all my wedding packages, they all came with a copyright disclaimer. So basically, I signed over the copyright back to them, but I retained artistic copyright, but they couldn't use it for newspapers or, you know, their own commercial purposes, if you know what I mean. So this is wedding clients or commercial clients? Wedding clients. Okay, so you really you're giving them usage rights, but you're still retaining copyright. Correct. Okay, got it. Let's talk about your book, you know, because we're sort of hovering around that subject. And before I ask you specifically about your Men and Their Sheds book, have you done or had you done other projects in the past? I've done personal, uh, well, books as in for clients. Well, not very clients. I did two dog books of my own that were an adjunct to my business. So they were just tiny little, you know, A4 sized books, you know, maybe 40 to 50 people in the book with their dogs. And I had proceeds of the book sales go back to, you know, lost dogs and lost another dog mob as well. So that was more like a, I guess, a promotion to bring clients in. They're going to get photos into a book. Yeah, they weren't personal projects. This is probably the first serious personal project I've ever really embarked in in my 30 years. Yeah, okay, this is fantastic. So why now? Why after 30 years do you think, okay, I'm going to do this? I wanted something, Andrew, that I wanted to photograph who I wanted, where I wanted it, when I wanted it, and light it exactly how I wanted it and not be, I guess, time-starved, you know, and chasing around, you know, clients at, at, you know, at a wedding venue and trying to get that, you know, because you're pressed for time and you got to squeeze, you know, you got to squeeze these shot in five minutes where here I spent, you know, sometimes upwards to five hours with one individual. And it was more about the connection and the conversation than it was actually about the photograph. So I was enjoying probably more of the connection and the conversations. And then when it came to the photograph, these individuals actually ended up taking ownership of their own photograph and they were posing themselves. So it just allowed me that freedom to do whatever I wanted. Awesome. Awesome. Talk me through and explain to the listener when this concept came about. So you get the idea of shooting or photographing men in their sheds and you just said then, you know, you had the choice of shooting who, what and when and how you're going to light it. Did you set yourself parameters? Did you think, okay, I'm going to have to do all these with one softbox, one backlight, or this has to be natural light only, or, you know, this had to be this way only, or did you adapt and change as you went through? Did you not set yourself any guidelines? Yeah, look, I set a lot of guidelines. At the very beginning? From, yeah, the very, very beginning. Okay, what were they? The very first shot was my father-in-law. And my father-in-law in his shed, um, that the one guideline was that the subject was going to be a composed using that, you know, that typical compositional, you know, one third from either left or right. So I was using the rule of thirds on almost every single shot. So that was one constant. The other constant was... Some of these sheds, my father-in-law got away with using available light, probably about 
maybe two or three shots in the entire book that was just strictly purely 110% available light. But what I wanted to make sure is every subject had backlighting, which allowed the subject to be separated from the background. So I went back to traditional aspects of what light is all about. So backlighting separates your subject from the background. I used side lighting to give the subject textural mood. I lit the subject specifically that the subject was going to be the one who was standing out in every single shot and not be, I guess, swallowed up by the environment as well. So that environment, you know, a shed can swallow up an individual because everybody be staring, trying to figure out what the person did. I wanted it to be really purely about that individual, hence why I lit them specifically with backlighting and, you know, either had a broad or short style. Uh, A lot of times just I happened to get a Rembrandt in there. So I really stuck to those lighting patterns. Okay. So did they come about because of the way you shot your father-in-law for the first shot? Or did you go in even before him with his idea of rule of thirds, backlighting, Rembrandt lighting? That sort of thing. I did, yep. That was a parameters from the beginning. That was parameters from the beginning. In my mind, I wanted to make sure that every subject is was all about the lighting. That's all it was, was about the lighting of the subject. Okay, and what else did you have in mind when you started? I mean, were you thinking book? Were you thinking exhibition? Were you thinking, I'm going to make money out of this? Yeah, well, that's exactly how I started April 2010, April 10th to be exact. And when I took my father-in-law's photograph, I sat down with my wife and I said, I'm going to turn this into a little spin-off to the business and sell prints and make these as a family heirloom style prints. And I want to do a book out of it. So I sat down and I actually wrote a project plan. So the project plan, I was just going through it with students today. It's 21 pages long. I wrote down every aspect I could do from the standpoint of how I could make a book happen, how much it was going to cost me, how long it was going to take me, and the whole idea of selling the prints. Now, the project itself, sort of then after the first year and a bit, it started taking a life of its own. Again, I was finding more about how these gentlemen were actually, uh, how I was connecting with them on a personal level. And then in December of 2011, I wasn't doing well mentally. So I went and had myself a mental health assessment. And it was through that mental health assessment, I found out that I had chronic lymphatic leukemia. So with that, I could have sat in a corner in the fetal position and just wallowed my life away. And I said, this isn't going to, I know exactly what I need to do with my project because I reflected back on the, I think, dozen or so shots that I had already taken and gone, I've got a bigger purpose with this project. And it's not just for me and me soothing my and nurturing my own, you know, I guess, mental issues, if you like. It was helping others and what others use their shed for. And that was for the love of sometimes keeping them mentally sane. Mm -hmm. So after 18 months, you'd only shot 12 parts to this project, 12 different guys. Correct. But you initially, were you targeting 101 from the beginning? 
from the beginning, I was targeting a hundred. <laughs> so this is going to be a 10 year project at that rate. At that rate, it was a 10 year project. And at, in the time of the project, it took five and a half years to do it. In the five and a half years, I had six visits to the hospital. So I had two hernia operations. I had an emergency removal of my appendix. I had my emergency removal of my gallbladder. Yeah. <laughs> like the list could go on. But, you know, what it highlighted to me is I used, I guess, myself and how I'm, I'm not afraid to go to the doctor. I'm not afraid to talk about anything that is bothering me in between my two ears. And if I need to open up, I'll open up because the only way we could keep going is by opening up and up and starting that conversation. Okay. So you get diagnosed with leukemia, you go through these operations, you've shot 10 or 12 of these guys. After all the things that you go through, does the project change direction? Do you start finding different subjects to photograph? No. Like I said, in December 2011, I flipped the project on its head and reworked the project plan with the idea of you know a mental and physical awareness, not only for the people who I was talking to, but also for myself. And I got asked to do an exhibition down in Geelong, and I met two fantastic individuals, and both of them have partaked in my book. One of them was Tony McManus, and he is an ambassador for Beyond Blue and does lots of speaking engagements for Beyond Blue. And he said, I think you should try to get on to Jeff Kennett with this because, you know, he loves the mental health side of things, and he loves men's sheds. So there was my tie, I guess, kick in the butt to go target Jeff Kennett. But then I also had a long discussion with Barry Golding, who is a patron to the Australian Men's Shed Association. And Barry and Jeff wrote the two forwards to my book. So I contacted Jeff after my exhibition, and he basically contacted me straight away, said, I want to be part of your book, and I'd be happy to write the forward to your book. And so is this all happening once you're you know, getting close to 101 and the book's finished, or this is still early on? No, this is only halfway now. Okay, so this is now starting to take off. This has taken off, absolutely. So I really just started kicking my own bum, and, you know, I wanted to do it in my pace, Andrew. That's the other thing is, you know, I didn't want to be – I was under my own timeline. I did a timeline that said three years, not five but, you know, there's lots of photographers that I know that have projects that have been on the go for 10 years. And then after 10 or 12 years, it finally comes to fruition as a book. So I guess, you know, even what I was saying to some people today that, you know, after I'd met with Jeff, Beyond Blue, because I met with Beyond Blue to try to come up with funding. Beyond Blue, just for the listener who's not aware, they help people suffering from depression, don't they? Or are there a, a body that deals with... They're a resource, yeah. Beyond Blue is a resource and they have helplines where they can help put you in touch with the right people. If you're suffering from depression or you feel depressed. Absolutely, suffering from depression and exactly. So that is where Beyond Blue is all about. And that's really where my project was. It was an idea of helping myself and through helping myself through using my photography and then I can help others using my photography and using their sheds. Cool. All right. Let's swing away from the creative for just a second. You know, in the beginning you said there was a chance that you're going to be, well, you thought there'd be going to be a good chance of making money 
by selling prints to these subjects as well. Did that happen? Did you make any money from the book and the photography? I have sold probably oh, maybe 15 or 20 enlargements. Out of 101? Yeah. Wow, so not a lot. Not a lot. Did you try and sell to each subject? I have. Anybody who has been interested in buying a print have bought a print. Again, Andrew, after my health scare and my issues, if you like, I didn't want money to be any objective or object of this project. It was a project that I didn't want to have money attached to it. Yeah, I was actually after people who were going to help fund me, but that became you know hard in itself. So I'm like, you know what? Who cares about the money? You know, life isn't always about money. It's about doing what you love. You know, they say if you do whatever you love, you never have to work a day in your life. And I just wanted to do what I love. So selling prints was an absolute bonus. I was originally going to self-publish this book. I wasn't going to go to a publisher because, you know, if I was going to publish it, I want the royalties, all of it. But it became too hard and too costly. To self-publish. I thought self-publishing was the cheapest and the easiest way to go. Yeah, but to have a container of books in my backyard, no distribution channel and no way of getting rid of 10,000 books with, you know, well, maybe two container loads, if not more, out my backyard. I figured a publisher was going to be the better option. So I went to the bookstore and I flipped through a whole bunch of books and found out who's doing what who was doing the most photographic books. And yeah, then I contacted Five Mile Press and they offered me a contract on the spot. So when you get a contract from a publisher, do they pay you an advance or how does that work? Yeah, they paid me a $1,500 advance and then I got $1,500 on book launch and then I get 17.5% royalties from every book sale. Okay, awesome. Very cool. So at the end of the day, I mean, I'm going to get off the topic of money in just a second. Like, is it a profitable thing to do or is it not at all? Look, I know you won't retire off of making books unless you're going to be prolific of making books, meaning, you know, you're churning out a book, you know, every couple of years and hopefully it's a bestseller too. And not only that, you got to make sure that the publisher, you know, that they want this to sell the book. You know, I've already approached them on two new ideas and they you know, they poo-pooed one idea and loved the other. So you want to do all this again? I am doing it again, yeah. I just started a new book uh, a couple of weeks ago. Have you revealed what it's about or is that a secret? It's not a secret. I am doing a documentary of, don't know how many, I haven't put a limit on people or a ceiling if you like, but I'm doing a documentary on people and family lives that surround dementia. So I've titled it sort of What Does Dementia Look Like? And it doesn't have a look. All these people who that I have met so far that have dementia, you can still carry on one fantastic, brilliant conversation with them. They may ask you your name 15, 20 times, but you can get their life story and you can document what their family life and what their livelihood is around them while they're living with dementia. Sounds fantastic. Yeah, so it's fantastic. The one shoot I've done so far was just mind-blowing. So you know what, I mean, I admire you and I know the listeners thinking, wow, I would love to do a subject or a project like that, take something on like this, do what Craig's doing, but I've got a mortgage, I've got kids, I've got a family, I've got to pay for schooling and cars. Where do I find the time to do that? 
Well, Andrew, that's why it took five and a half years to do my men and their chef book. <laughs> so there's no race, is there? You know, I've got kids. I had the mortgage. You know, I was still shooting some weddings. I was still shooting lots of family portraits. And then I was teaching, you know, full time. So trying to keep my involvement with the AIPP, trying to do, you know, enter awards, trying to do exhibitions. You know, you've got to beat to your own drum. And, you know... I found myself at many points in my career so far, which is still going, that I get wallowed up with looking on the other side of the fence rather than looking in my own backyard and looking at my own ideas and doing my own thing and not worrying about, you know, what's going on out behind you, but look out what's going ahead of you in your own two feet in your own backyard. So that's sort of where I come from on that front. When you're saying that, I'm imagining you're talking about watching what other photographers are doing, you know, what they're producing, what they're making. You should ignore that and do what you want to do, what's in your heart. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. I mean, I wouldn't say ignore it, but you can always look and take a look over the fence and, oh, yeah, that looks all right. Oh, I like that idea. Then come right back into your own idea and to your own world and do your own thing rather than trying to, I guess, get wrapped up in what everybody else is doing. Did you ever have any negative thoughts about what you were doing, thinking, this is a dumb idea, this isn't going to work, this is crazy, what am I thinking? Absolutely. Absolutely. I can't tell you how many times while doing this project, and it came down to money too, and it came down to, oh, God, where am I going to find, you know, all the petrol money to go up to Uchuka and back? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? I'm just going to do it. You know, who cares? The amount of times I wanted to quit the project, and it was my wife that just kept me you know, on the the right direction. And then the more I think, like, what am I thinking? Why am I sitting there, you know, having these negative thoughts? And that's the thing. And that's sometimes, that's the hard part because you can get so caught up in your own mind as well and lose sight of what you're actually trying to achieve. So, you know, now I look at myself now and I'm just like, I've shot one shoot for this dementia book and I've got a follow-up book that I'm going to be doing with my sheds about lost artisans and, yeah, lost art that are kept alive by men and women alike, sort of that in that shed ilk. But I haven't done anything about it yet. But you know what? The time will come because, you know, things in your life get in the way, but you'll find time for it. So to really keep your own mind set is to go with your own journey and follow with your heart. But there's many times over the last, you know, six months, the last two months because I've given up full-time employment and now I don't know where my next paycheck is going to come from but my roof's still over the head bills are still getting paid and I'm still teaching photography and I'm still taking photos that's good I might be just rambling on at all but here I don't think I'm making any sense to me but hey you are definitely you are this is great you know how you said there you've got another project in the back of your head already so this is the lost artisan you started the project on dementia yeah. And you said, okay, you've started one. Talk to me about how you work. So if an opportunity presents itself now to photograph one of these artisans, do you go and photograph them now amongst while you're doing all the other stuff with dementia? Or do you say, okay, I'm going to put that aside. I'll get to that when I start that. I've got 100 individuals already who have either contacted me because of the Men's Shed book or I have collected through um, – I went up to a town called Kiton, which is about an hour and change north 
west of Melbourne, and they had the annual Lost Trades Fair. And they invited me up there to sell my book because they know what my book stands for, you know, about that raising awareness for mental health, etc. And I've been to this Lost Trades Fair for the last three years, well, now three years running, but two years prior, I just went up just to have a, here's an Aussie term for you, a sticky nose, right? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, this is a, another idea. So I started feeding on that idea last year, and then this year, while my wife sat under the tent selling books and then I'd run back and sign a few and then I'd go back out, I collected over 100 business cards and interviewed almost 100 people that were there at the Lost Trades Fair asking if they were interested in being in my next book. And they all gave me the business card and said, come on up, let's have a chat. So I've got it all ready to go. But will you start photographing them or that's got to wait? Yeah, I will. I will start photographing. As a matter of fact, I'm starting to get itchy trigger finger as it is and thinking, oh, I've got a guy that one of the guys I met, he's just about half an hour away from me. I should just go and, and just go and shoot him just to get it going. But you haven't yet. Why not? I haven't had time, Andrew. I've been so busy every weekend. This past weekend, I had a weekend workshop. So I was teaching all weekend. And then this weekend, I have a free weekend. But I actually want to spend it with my kids Fair enough. I understand. Yeah. So things are going to start steamrolling ahead. And that's the thing. You've got to let your life. And that's why I don't want to put pressure on me. You know, I'll get it done in my time. And when it happens, it'll happen because it will happen because I won't let it not happen. Let me ask you about finding your subjects because I imagine that, you know, the listeners here and I am too, my mind's ticking over with different ideas as you're running through some of your ideas. How did you find 101 guys with their sheds to photograph? The projects obviously started off with my father-in-law and then I was in conversation with some friends and, oh, my dad's got a shed. You want to go photograph him? Yeah, sure. Why not? So I'd start off with, you know, friends' dads and then I went to one of my friends' dad's place and then he took me to four of his friends photographed all four of his. Yeah, but hang on. So the guy that you had to photograph, did they had to fit a certain mold? You know, did they have to have a certain size shed or a certain looking shed or did they have to have some character about their face? Nope, none. Because everybody is worthy of a photograph, no matter what age or what gender. Everybody's worthy of a photograph. You know, for the amount of radio interviews that I've done with this book, I've always gone back to the book that has made a huge influence on me is How to Win Friends and Influence People. And when you can sit down and show genuine interest in what an individual does, they give back sometimes tenfold. So any shed did, any shed will do. So it just sort of steamrolled from there. And then before I know it, I had people ringing me or emailing me. And I had students volunteering their parents, their grandparents, the subject, did you promise them anything in return for posing for you? No. Not even a print, nothing? No, not, they didn't even ask. They didn't even ask for something in return. Okay. So you turn up and you mentioned earlier that you would spend, you know, sometimes up to four or five hours with one of these people, with these guys. Yeah. You know, were you setting up lights? Were you just sitting down having a cup of tea? You know, what were you <laughs> doing for that four to five hours? Yeah, having a cup of tea. <laughs> I can't tell you how many cups of teas I've had, Andrew, how many tea cakes, cookies, biscuits, you name it, sitting around a kitchen table and sometimes sitting around the kitchen table with husband and wife and just talking about what their shed meant to them. 
are you recording while they're talking to you? Are you taking notes? What are you doing while they're giving you their story? I recorded every single interview. I had a handheld recorder and I recorded every interview because like I said, the, the whole idea behind the shed was to raise that all important awareness of mental and physical health. And if these guys were using their sheds or didn't even know of the Australian Men's Shed Association, A, made them aware of that, but B, quite a few of them are very, very open to share what their life experiences were with either mental illness or lack of. You know, it doesn't strike, you know, mental illness isn't something that strikes everybody. And that's where I found the aspect of giving from all these guys and families was just off the charts. It's almost I'm left speechless in a way. Mm-hmm. What happened to the audio recordings or what did you do with them? So the audio recordings, I sat down on the train for about six months transcribing all of the recorded interviews and put it to text. And then I gave all that text that I typed out from all the interviews to a student of mine. And uh, she was a writer and offered to wordsmith all of my text. So I spent many hours on the train, tip-tapping away on the keyboard and listening and rewinding and listening and rewinding and typing out the conversations. The conversations aren't in the book in full. So did you just pick snippets out of those then that you needed for the book? I did. Yeah, I picked all the snippets and obviously the important snippets. And some of in the book are short. And I think the short sometimes was enough. Some of them were quite elaborate. You know, I've had some very interesting phone conversations with people who have rung me out of the blue, who've bought the book or been given the book as gifts and said it was the best read they've ever had, and it was the easiest to read. Oh, by the way, loved the pictures too. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just trying to work out how this got put together. So you've got all these photos, you've got all these words. It sounds like you've done the writing. Did you get to pick the photos? Did you have any say in the layout of the book design and which words went in, which words didn't? I pretty much had all the say in the whole book. I gave all the text and all the filler images, which, you know, as with every shed, I, you know, it's one of those, I can't believe, Andrew, how much foresight I had in five years that I'd shoot all the detail as well. So with every shed, I shot details of the sheds. So I gave that to their in-house designer, And he came back with me a couple of months later with a layout. And how different is that layout to what I'm looking at right now? Pretty much exactly to the point. Wow. It's beautiful. I mean, it's a beautiful looking book as well, isn't it? I mean, you can sell that a professional has laid it out. Yep. It's gorgeous. So this is the publisher's designer has done this. The publisher's book designer did it. And there's a lot of times I said, you know, I drew upon my, you know, album design skills of, you know, designing wedding albums and how the images were laid out and, you know, would say, no, filler images need to go on the left. No, I want that one to be a double page spread. But it was really interesting how the guy who did the designs, it was almost like he was in my mind. In that he was doing what you were thinking? Exactly what I was thinking. Yeah. Wow. Oh, yeah. It's really is a beautiful book. Thank you. So when you first got delivery of the book, talk me through how that felt. Oh, Andrew, I was told that it was going to arrive on a Friday 
and I left work early, as you do. It was like uh, Christmas as a five-year-old. And what was even more, I guess, you know, humbling is my in-laws came down too. So it was a full family affair. And my wife recorded the video of the truck rolling up and me (laughs) going out and carrying a big box of books from the truck all the way into the house. And it was like Christmas. You know, I opened up that book and yeah, look, I, I lost the plot when I gave the publisher the hard drive with all the imagery on it, I lost it. Absolutely lost it. I was a bumbling little fool, but it was not from sadness. It was utter joy of pure accomplishment of an idea that I stuck true to for five and a half years. And yeah, so then when the book showed up, it was again, it was, you know, I was bawling. I was absolutely in tears. Is that footage anyway? Where's that footage? Can we see that? It's on my, I think my, is it on my phone? I don't know. It's on my phone or on my wife's phone. I'm going to try and chase you up for that and see if we can have it go with the, the show notes for this interview. Cool. <laughs> but I know we're running out of time here, but I'm just curious about the promotion of the book because, you know, it's popped up everywhere. You know, you're on radio, TV, newspaper article, you know, you're popping up everywhere. Did you hire a PR person to help you with that? The publisher did all that for me. And this is the other thing. I don't know if I would have been able to do this all on my own, like I originally had uh, planned. The publisher did it all. It's one of those things that when I look back at it, I used to say when I first started this project about, you know, like I said, quarter of the way in, I said, I went back to that, you know, Field of Dreams, Kevin Costner movie, that if you build it, they will come. And when I had my episode and my diagnosis, I said to myself that this is not about me. This has a bigger purpose, but I'm going to be somebody who can hopefully deliver my vision, help myself, help others, and use my photography and their sheds for communication. So I just constantly just was prolifically getting my work exhibited, the Ballarat Biennale down here, done, you know, Geelong twice at the Courthouse Arts. They've invited me back twice. And then I went and approached Barwin Health because I was looking again for some funding. And they said, no, look what we, instead of us giving them your money, we'll actually buy an exhibition. We'll pay for all the framing and you can have an exhibition here at the hospital. So I had an exhibition down in Geelong at the Barwin Health Hospital. And then I got invited to be a core exhibitor at the Head-On in 2015. And it just sort of took a life on its own. You know, I submitted a lot of times to magazines. I think Australian Photography Magazine ran a great article on it. And I think it's one of those things, and that's why I'm doing my dementia is getting out and helping, you know, involving myself in the community and using my photography as a vehicle to help generate community awareness of, I guess, social issues. And dementia is becoming a huge social issue. And depression is a huge social issue. So I guess it sort of took a life on its own. And like I said, the publisher did all the advertising for the radio. And, you know, I had the Manspace TV with Shane Jacobson. 
the project carried it. And then I know the TV show called The Shed Show came on the book launch night. And the book launch was an animal in itself. I had 450 people at a book launch. The publisher said they've never in all their years of, and they do big books, have never seen a book launch as large as what I did. And it was about the men in the book, because that's why I wanted it as a celebration of, I guess, you know, male identity. And uh, yeah, because at the book launch, I had cars, I had pinball machines, I had about a dozen guys from the book bring their cars, motorbikes, etc. there. And it was just, it was epic. What would you say to someone that was listening that had an idea for a project? Go with your heart and stay true to what you want to do. Take input and inspiration from others, but stay true to your idea. Put your idea on paper. And that's why I think my project came to such, I guess, a huge fruition was I put it down on paper. I had it, I know it sounds probably insane, Andrew, but a 21-page project report. That does sound insane. <laughs> but that was the key, you think? It sounds like you think that was the key to making this thing work. That is the number one key. I mean, our ideas, you know, you can keep with an idea in the back of your head, but it's not real until it's tangible. And that goes back to, you know, if we bring that back from where we first started this conversation, a digital file is not tangible. A print is tangible. A book is tangible. And that lives forever where a digital file, you know, I always say, can you see my photos on my phone? Maybe through osmosis you could, but that doesn't exist. But a book, you can touch it, smell it, feel it, and it's there. And that's why I tried to stick to that book and print and no digital files. There's so many places I can send people to have a look at your work. Where's the best place for people to go and have a look at the book or order a copy of the book and, and see examples of what's in the book? Yeah, absolutely. You could go to, well, most bookstores have the book for sale. The price point is all over the place. The book retails for $45. Book depository ships internationally, free of charge, free shipping. Booktopia. Booktopia have a nice little benefit for me because if people buy from Booktopia, Booktopia chuck me an extra, I guess, buck or two or whatever, however they do it. Yeah, so those are two of the bookstores. Angus and Robertson. Dimex has been a huge supporter of mine. They've done a book signing already with me and Collins as well. All right. I'll add links to all those in the show notes. And what about your website? Where's the best place? My shed website is just mensshedphotography.com.au. Mate, I'll add links to all those places and uh, all those sites in the show notes so people can check it out. Craig, this has been a real pleasure, mate. Thank you for spending the time. Thanks for sharing what you have. It's, uh, you're an inspiration. Oh, thank you. You are, mate. And I didn't ask, how's your health? Is it looking good? My health is great. Good. Yeah, so I mean, I'm happy to finish off on that. That's you know, great to finish that off because I'm not going to die. I'll die from something else. As my specialist who sees me every year keeps reassuring me that I will die from something else. And it's funny, I had this conversation with a student of mine on the weekend and she goes, yeah, we don't see many of you in the hospital. She works in the cancer ward. She goes, you're a unique lot because chronic lymphocytic leukemia is one blood number in my blood disorder that just sort of replicates itself. But as long as my number doesn't double and it doesn't double, it goes up, it goes down, it goes up. It went up this year, last year it went down. So I just look after myself, reduce as much stress as I humanly possibly can. Nice. 
Mate, well, stay healthy, keep shooting, and I can't wait to share this interview with the listener, mate. So, again, thanks so much for coming on. Well, thank you for having me, Andrew. You've been listening to the Photo Experiment Podcast with Andrew Helmich, brought to you by PhotoBizX, the podcast to help you build a successful portrait and wedding photography business. To learn more, head to photobizx.com. Honestly, the very beginning, I don't even know how to, I don't know how to, you know, photographers hold their images so tight and so personal. So I don't know how to, I didn't know how to, I probably came off totally wrong. No, it's fine. You know, and what I liked was that you, you stopped and paused and thought about it. And, you know, even if you couldn't find the right way to get across what you're trying to say straight away, I think we got there in the end, but I think it was totally fine the way you handle it. I think it was good. I guess, you know, I mean, you shoot weddings. I mean, look, I have no problem selling my files. I have no problem selling my files. But we tend to sometimes as photographers, I think we just hold on to our work so tightly. Maybe I'm wrong, but I hear my students, you know, I'm I'm never going to sell my files. I'm like, well, you need to let go of that now. Otherwise, you're going to kill yourself. But you know what you're saying to your students, you need to let go of them, but you're the one that's not letting go. I know. I know. That's why I'm confused. I know. <laughs> you're not practicing what you're preaching. <laughs> but I mean, I'm trying not. Yeah. I mean, wedding clients, I have no problem uh, selling them the files. Commercial clients, they pay for it. It's their files. It sounds like you're more personally attached to your personal work. These shed shots. Absolutely. You have every right to be, and that's why you don't want to let them go. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm very, very, very attached to my shed photos. I know. It just, uh, I think, you know, because I hear students all the time, they're so attached to their work. And they just, I know, same here, myself. You just can't let go. can end up driving you mad. And I think that's what ended up driving me mad because I couldn't let go. But, you know, 10 years ago or, or uh, you know, when we were shooting film, we wouldn't let them go. No, so I think that's where I come from is because I come from film days. I never let go of my negatives, never let go of them. That's right. Yeah, I think it carries on from there. But, and I think still some people do feel exactly the same way. Mm-hmm. I don't see an issue with it, but you just have to be comfortable with whatever you're doing. Absolutely. 